you want to open your Bibles again to Luke chapter 2, that would be wonderful. Feels like a non-traditional Christmas, waking up to thunder, shaking the bed, literally. Somebody told me there were car alarms in their neighborhood going off. Um, yeah, very non-traditional feeling Christmas. It, it's not, well, six years ago, I guess we had Christmas on a Sunday. It just seems different, seems odd. Uh, I've chosen a non-traditional Christmas passage. It deals with Jesus, it deals with his coming uh, when he's still young, very young, and yet I thought, let's do something non-traditional. We're going to have um, a look into this man named Simeon's life, and Simeon meeting Jesus, and God's promise to Simeon, and I think there's some very, very important things we can learn about Jesus. So, top ten list, if you will, from our text regarding Jesus, some extraordinary, important things about Jesus we learn from this man named Simeon and his encounter with with Jesus. If you would like a sermon title, uh, my sermon title is Simeon's Only Christmas. Usually if somebody only has one Christmas, it's sad, right? Because they only live one year. But here's this old man, and it's not a sad Christmas, it's his one and only Christmas, but it means God kept his word, he kept his promise, and he got to see Jesus uh, the hope of salvation. And so it's his one and only Christmas, and so and hopefully one we can learn from and, and benefit from. Uh, the characters, the setting, uh, we already read the passage for scripture reading. It'll become pretty evident as we go. Again, Simeon is an old, uh, we'll call him an Old Testament, an old Old Testament saint, okay? Which is kind of strange because an old Old Testament saint, well, he's old in years. We don't know much beyond that. I'd call him an Old Testament saint, which is kind of weird because he's in the New Testament. Um, but Old Testament saint in the sense that he was a believer before Jesus ever came. Um, and he's been waiting for this. He's been waiting to meet his Savior, so to speak. Uh, Jesus and, or excuse me, Joseph and Mary take Jesus there because of um, Old Testament law and what they need to do with their firstborn. But let's go ahead and jump right in. Top ten list, if you will, regarding Jesus and his greatness. Number one, Jesus is holy unto the Lord. Jesus is holy unto the Lord. We'll see it here in the first few verses. Look at verse 22 with me, if you would. And when the time came for their purification, this is Mary, Joseph, bringing the baby, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that would be Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Okay? As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That's Exodus 13. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. All kinds of things happening. Mary and Joseph wanting to do the right thing as Jewish people. So they go to the temple at that time, the most important place on earth. It's where God meets with his people. It's where atonement happens. So they're going to go there. They're going to bring Jesus there. And we do see that Jesus is referred to as, because he's the firstborn, holy unto the Lord or holy to the Lord. Now that was true of not just Jesus, right? Every firstborn son, holy, set apart, unique to serve the Lord. And yet we know what they didn't even know in full, that Jesus was holy unto the Lord in an extraordinary sense. That He is most holy unto the Lord. He's going to be the most unique, the most different, the most set apart of all in human history. So it's not even as 
as it seems. It's far greater than what it seems. And we know based upon what's going to happen later in chapter 2 that Mary and Joseph don't even realize this. They know something, but they don't even know the something of it and how great it's going to be. Unique birth, firstborn. We're not going to take the time this morning to look at the passages, but he's firstborn in the extra, extra, extraordinary sense. Because he's firstborn in the sense, like Colossians says, the most preeminent. He is above and beyond all. He's the firstborn of all creation. And then it goes on to St. Colossians because he is the creator. Preeminent one. So let's move on now and keep working through our passage. Number two on our top ten list regarding Jesus, learning from Simeon, would be Jesus is the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. And I don't know about you, when I hear consolation, I think of consolation prize, right? I think of something you get when you don't win. But consolation, the idea is comfort. He's the comfort of Israel. Maybe your translation even says it that way. Jesus is the consolation, the comfort of Israel. And Israel's been promised comfort when Messiah, the King, the Deliverer, the Savior comes. They will be brought ultimate comfort. No more pain, no more suffering, no more warfare. And Jesus is referred to as that. Look with me, if you would, in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. That's why I call him an Old Testament saint. He wanted to follow God's law. He wanted to be committed to God, the one true God. And then it says, waiting for the consolation, waiting for the, I want to say consolation, the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Jewish thinking is, one day no more war. One day no more conflict. One day God is going to keep His extraordinary promises to us, an otherwise weak and feeble people, and He is going to bring deliverance. He's going to bring ultimate comfort to us. And here, Simeon, the old man, he's been waiting. He's a believer. He believes the Isaiah prophecies. And now he sees Jesus. He sees the comfort of Israel, the deliverance of Israel. Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. And, how about this, her iniquity is pardoned. Oh, one day, isn't this interesting too? This is happening in the temple where there is pardon, but it's, it's not ultimate. But we're waiting for that day when it is ultimate. We're waiting for that day when there's no more conflict and there's no more conflict between us and God. Pardoned. Iniquities. Sin is pardoned. Well, Jesus is the one, according to Simeon. Isaiah 49, 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Isaiah 51, verse 3, the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her broken places. Isaiah 61 as well. All of these kind of messianic prophecies, they're waiting for comfort. They're waiting for ultimate comfort. And here he sees little Jesus and concludes, I can die now. This is, this is what, what we've all been anticipating. It's in him. Consolation. If you think about 
just how significant this is. You, you think about, okay, no more enemy problems. But here is Simeon. He's called a righteous man. He, he does his best with God's help to, to, to respect and adhere to God's law. Righteousness is a law word. It's always related to law. So that, he's that kind of person. But isn't it interesting that he'll have comfort in the ultimate sense? There's no more law hanging over his head that he's got to do, got to do, got to do, got to do. Now Jesus is going to bring ultimate comfort because he's going to be the fulfillment of it all. Let's move on. Let's, well, I, I guess I should say, it, it, by the way, the consolation of Israel, well, we're going to get into this, but even in our passage, if he's the consolation of Israel, he's ultimately then through them going to be the cons- consolation, the comfort to the whole world, including Gentiles. So it starts with them for sure, but it goes beyond them. Number three, top ten list. Jesus is the Lord's Christ. We see this in verse 26. He is the Lord's Christ. Look at 26 with me if you would. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, that is to Simeon, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Just join me in drawing some good attention there. The Lord's Christ. Well, the Lord, God, He doesn't need a Christ. So it doesn't mean that. Duh. But he's the Lord's Christ in that he is from the Lord. God is given Messiah, Christ. He's the Lord's Christ. By way of contrast to the Christ that we would necessarily pick, what kind of Christ do the people choose? The people choose a Christ like Saul, because he's tall, dark, and handsome, and powerful to the human eye, and we're going to elect our man, so to speak. That's how we act. We're going to elect our Christ, and here's what he's going to look like, and here's the qualifications he's going to meet. I love the emphasis. He's the Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's deliverer, the Lord's rescuer, the Lord's Messiah. comes from him. It also points to the fact that it's grace, right? He's not ours. He's not a self-made. No, he's provided by God. I've seen the Lord's Christ, the ultimate David, right? The one in the line of David we've been waiting for. I've seen him. It's a great reminder to us. He is the Lord's Christ. That's what makes him a great Christ to us because he comes from God. He's the Lord's Christ. He's given. He's gifted. Not the one we deserve, but the one who comes from none other than God himself. Number four, Jesus is the, is the child Jesus. Jesus is the child Jesus. 27, and he, Simeon, came uh, in the Spirit, so under the power of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, into the temple. Again, I said earlier, the most important place on earth at the time. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus, I wanted to emphasize that and draw your attention to that, the child Jesus, to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And we're going to rudely interrupt him there for a moment and see we're talking about the child Jesus. The child Jesus, who is very God of very God, as Christians have said, He's not lesser. The child Jesus who is none other than the great I am. 
We learn in John's Gospel account, the child Jesus, who is none other than before Abraham was born, I am the pre-existent one, and now he's a child. And we can talk about humble, right? But we should also make sure we talk about the fact that if he's the child Jesus, he's become one of us, born into the human race. He's a human being. The God who created becomes one of us, and that becomes super important for us. It was super important for them. It's super important, period, because we need Him to not only be great God, we need Him to be human being like us, because He has to do the right things in our place. Lots of us who've been Christians for very long have spent a lot of energy as we, have, we deal with conflicts and we have to deal with people who question Christianity and we have to deal with op- opposition and cults and isms and spasms and schisms and all this kind of stuff. But a lot of our energy has been given to defending and promoting the deity of Jesus. And, and that will always be necessary and that's very important. But sometimes what we've done is we've forgotten how important the humanity of Jesus is. But we kind of have a shift in our culture right now and people don't have a problem with supernatural stuff so much. So the big debate oftentimes is not the deity of Jesus, at least right now, raging. It'll come back. And so some of us are like, well, why does he need to be human? And we, we start talking about why he needs to be human and then those are foreign categories to us because all we've ever emphasized or all we've ever heard emphasized is his deity. Don't get me wrong, deity is super important. But just as important is His humanity because we're human beings. So we need Him to be tested, tried. We need Him to be the faithful last Adam and not do what the unfaithful first Adam did. So when we see here, how is He referred to? The child Jesus. Reminds me, human being. A child. He's one of us. This is extraordinary. This is crucial. This is important. We need him to be so he can be the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Number five on our list. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. He's the the fulfillment of God's promise. 28 says, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. He's praising God. He's acknowledging God's promises and his goodness and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. So fulfilled to him, God promised him that he would see him. So God's fulfilling his promise to Simeon. But we even know there's something grander going on because God is fulfilling his promise, his messianic promise to people beyond Simeon. God promised to provide this mediator, to provide this perfect one. He's been promising that since Genesis. And Jesus is the one. And he's acknowledged so in the temple. Let's go to the sixth one, number six. Jesus is God's salvation. He's God's salvation, not for God, right? But from God. 30 says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Love that. My, I've witnessed, this is real, and I've seen your salvation. I love it that he calls Jesus your salvation because it comes from you. It's not because of our efforts. And he can look at Jesus and he can just title him that. 
Jesus is your salvation, the salvation of God. It makes sense. Jesus' name means salvation. But I love the emphasis here from Simeon. I thought where my mind immediately went was when God says in the Old Testament that I will not give my glory to another. It's His. It belongs to Him. He's the one and only true God. It's God's glory. And here we have in Jesus, God's salvation is His. He gives it to us. It's God's salvation for us. God's deliverance for us. Salvation from God's judgment. Salvation from our bondage to sin. No longer are we enslaved if we're believers. We have the power of the Spirit. Jesus is God's sure salvation. His, therefore, I would even say, safe salvation. Then in verse 31, it says that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. God's salvation prepared in the presence of, so people could see in the presence of all peoples. Maybe referring, some Bible scholars think it's referring to, to Old Testament history, all of redemptive history leading up to this time. It's for people to see God has been preparing. God has been paving the way. And that's certainly true. Or it could mean that what's happening here with Jesus is not a private event. It's not hidden. You've prepared your salvation in this child, Jesus. And again, back to our text, in the presence of all peoples. Idea being... It's not some hidden backroom thing. It's not some secret. It's not something that could be made up. It's not the thing of fantasy. It's not the thing of imaginations. No, you've done this, your salvation, Jesus who is called salvation, and you've done this in the presence of everyone. Maybe we could put it this way. You've done this in real time and real space in human history. On the calendar. How about this? The birth of Jesus is a public event. As I like to say, it's not the stuff of Narnia. It's real. It's real. And again, we need him to be real because we need him to be a human being because we're real and we're really living before the one true and real living God God has prepared the salvation for everybody to see. In Luke chapter 3, verse 6, it says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Again, public event. Let's move on to number 7. Jesus is Savior of the world. Jesus is Savior of the world. Verse 32 tells us this, even though it doesn't use this, this wording. A light for revelation, Simeon says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. There's a parallel there, and it's essentially saying the same thing, I think. Okay? 
revelation, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So there's, there's great benefit to your people Israel and there's great benefit to the Gentiles. So that's why I'm saying he's the savior of the world because he's the benefit to the Gentile, the Jews for salvation, benefit to the Gentiles to salvation. If you're new to the Bible, there are only two kinds of people in the Bible. There are Jews and everyone else. There are Jews and Gentiles. So that's why I'm saying Savior of the world. He's coming and doing something good for for Jews and Gentiles, not just for the Jews. Now, there could be a bit of, uh, of difference, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have God's revelation. They didn't have a special revelation of Scripture. To use biblical language, they didn't have the oracles of God, okay, like the Jews did. But Jesus is the special revelation from God, and he is special revelation from God even to Gentiles. And for glory to your people Israel, well, they had the special revelation, and now they see it in its fullness, in its greatness, and it's to benefit them. It's for their glory because they had received the promises. But the overall point is, Salvation for Jew and Gentile. This is why the Bible says that we as believers are to make disciples, right? Followers for Jesus, of Jesus, of all nations. It's Jew and Gentile. Okay, how about the response? I like the response. I think your response should be the same as this response. Verse 33 says, And his father and his mother, this would be Joseph and Mary, marveled at what was said about him. This is marvelous. They're marveling. Mouths open, jaws dropped. In a good and sanctified sense, are are, are you kidding us? This isn't the first they've heard about these kinds of promises, but again... it's got to sink in. They're marveling at this. Our our baby? Yeah. He's the one. I think that's what we should do is marvel at Jesus. Sometimes it takes some time to sink in. Sometimes we hear about Jesus and we hear these great things and then we're like, what should we do? just stand there do something don't just do something stand there <laughs> right you go I, I don't know what to do other than I, this is this is marvelous this is great in a good simi- simionic <laughs> sure it's christmas <laughs> and it's 50 degrees outside in nebraska <laughs> in a good simionic sense you just bless god you say god is good god is great Number eight, Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many. Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many. 34 says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child, remember this child is God's salvation child. This God's salvation child 
is appointed, it's a predetermined word, is appointed, designated for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Not by accident, Mary. Not by accident. This child is destined for the rising and falling of many. He's going to divide the nation. He's going to divide humanity. He's the, he's the chief cornerstone, right? That everything is built upon. He's the key one. The church is going to be built upon him. He, he's, the, the, again, the most important rock. But he also is the rock of stumbling and the rock of offense. So the very same one. And think about how important this is for them. He's God's salvation child. He's the best of all. He's the most unique, the most special. He's the comfort, the consolation of Israel. There's no one greater. And so you think everything will go perfectly. Of course, if he's Israel's consolation, if he's Israel's comfort, then Israel will embrace him. And even right here and now, it's being communicated to them, he's been appointed for something else. And I think it's important that you know that. And that I know that. It's not by by accident or bad luck or failure that people that we want to have embrace Jesus. The problem isn't with Jesus, put it that way. By design, I didn't design it, you didn't design it, but by design, before he ever speaks a word, it's been made clear that this is what's going to happen. That doesn't answer all my questions, but at least helps me understand something of why or, or what's going to happen. Number nine, a ninth significant aspect of Jesus being born. Number nine, Jesus is appointed for opposition. This is related to eight. Jesus is appointed for opposition. It says, Behold, this child is appointed for... We already looked at that. By the way, it's trans- the same Greek word is translated in 1 Thessalonians 3, destined. Behold, this child is appointed. Behold, this child is destined. And then I'm going to skip the middle part that we just covered and go right to the end for a sign that is opposed. He's destined for a sign that is opposed. Why, why would this be? Why is there a, a, a being destined for opposition and for a sign that is opposed? Well, I don't know all the ins and outs, but, but I do know that this needs to happen. I do know that the cross needs to happen. And by the way, Luke, in Luke, Luke in terminology, as Luke writes Luke Acts, volume 1, volume 2, he's going to talk about this destined for opposition. When he gets into chapter 3 and chapter 4, and even though people crucify Jesus, Luke makes it clear this happened according to the predetermined plan of God needs to happen because atonement needs to happen, right? He ha- he's the Lamb of God. He's the substitute. Th- it's part of the plan. Acts 4.28 says, 
talking to God to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. But what's fascinating to us is here's Jesus, the little one, and it's already being communicated through Simeon to Jesus' parents. In a veiled way, this is going to happen. See, there's a plan, there's a purpose. This makes sense. If, if, if there was a plan for Messiah thousands of years beforehand, oh, even beyond that in eternity past, it would make sense even when Jesus is young and not speaking, that it would be said of him, there's going to be conflict. Well, Isaiah 53 requires it, for example. Our redemption requires it. Okay, number... Oh, let's keep going just a little bit with number nine. This appointed for opposition. How about verse 35? 35 says in parenthesis in my translation, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Simeon to Mary. There's a very important parenthetical idea here. A sword will pierce through you. At the very heart of your being, you'll feel the, the, the kind of pain that is almost indescribable. And, and we know, we can, we can put the pieces together, we understand, it's because he's going to, he'll, he'll go to the cross and, and she will feel the grief of a mother like no mother could feel. The crucifixion of her perfect, innocent son. Isn't it interesting, and I think it's important, that here we are in a context talking about appointment, designation, purpose, plan, and it's not separated, it's not divorced from emotion, feeling, pain, tragedy. This is the appointment, and it's not, and so you can smile when Jesus goes to the cross. No, because when Jesus goes to the cross, it will be a horrific thing. It will reveal terrible sin from the people who do it. It will reveal something terrible about human sin, opposition to God. It will be a terrible day, even though it's used by God to be redemptive. Again, I don't know how this all sorts itself out, but I do know we see both emphasized, and I think it's good for us to be exposed to it and say, this is, this is a good mystery, how it all works. And Jesus is God's salvation, and He's a great salvation. And then we move on to number 10. <clears throat> Jesus is the revealer of hearts. Jesus is the revealer of hearts. And we'll read the latter part of 34 and 35, and then we'll close. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. We just saw that, but I wanted you to carry that into 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. We saw that, but that carries us into the end of 35. So that, this is going to happen, so that thoughts from many hearts may be 
revealed. The tragedy is going to happen and the difficulty is going to happen so that the, what did he say? Thoughts from many hearts will be exposed, will be revealed. Jesus is the revealer of hearts. And specifically the conflict that Jesus brings, that he brought then, that he brought at the crucifixion, betrayal with his disciples, it reveals people's hearts. It does it now too. The work of Jesus reveals people's hearts. See, the problem isn't with Jesus. It's not, he's not illogical. His work is not illogical. It's not, not historical. It's historical. It's not any of those things. The problem isn't with him. The problem is with you and me. The problem is with our hearts. And Jesus is going to be the revealer of many hearts. Yeah, they're going to crucify Him. People like you and people like me. It is noteworthy and worth observing for us. How silly it is when we say things like or think things like, it's all going to be okay, even though I have all of this sin because I actually have a good heart and God knows my heart. No. But we do know in passages beyond this, Jesus exposes the heart and Jesus, according to the power of the Spirit, gives new hearts. regenerates, gives life. Otherwise, we wouldn't need Jesus. Otherwise, He wouldn't have needed to come and be born in front of everyone. Otherwise, we wouldn't need God's salvation. It's also important that you and I know, again, to underscore this, the gospel isn't the problem. Jesus isn't the problem. The people we talk to, like us, apart from God's grace, are the problem. So we don't need to tinker with Jesus. We don't need to try to water it down. We don't need to try to beef it up. We don't need to try to recast it so it's more palatable or sellable. Oh, he, he's the Savior. He's God's salvation. Why would we want to mess with that? So we would want to eagerly, enthusiastically, Communicate it, share it, give it, promote it. But it's God's salvation. And God and God alone is the author of salvation who can save. Simeon, one and only Christmas. We can learn lots from Simeon. I hope you've learned a thing or two from Simeon, but not necessarily about him in the end, but about Jesus. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for Christmas morning, for our families, those of us who have families, for our friends, for our church family, 
And most of all, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who is known to us as your salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're grateful. We're grateful for these things. Please use your word to build us up and to sustain us. Or for those who are not trusting in Christ, use your word to, to, to bring great exposure of hearts that one day there may be repentance and faith in Him. Give us an extraordinary afternoon, regardless of what we're doing, whether we're we're with others or we're alone. May we find ourselves uh, with these believers marveling and blessing you, the one true, living, powerful God. In Jesus' name, amen.